Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and today's episode is a webinar that I hosted a couple of months ago. This was a live webinar a couple of months ago with doctors Sandy Hilton, David Butler, and Bronnie Thompson. And I got these three amazing people together to discuss treating people living with persistent pain during the COVID-19 pandemic. So some of the things that we discussed is shifting current healthcare curriculum to better educate clinicians on persistent pain. Can passive modalities empower people to pursue more active treatment options? How to create more SIMS, which are safety in me's, during the COVID-19 pandemic? And can telehealth appointments adequately address persistent pain? So listen, to have the three of these uh, clinicians, researchers, teachers on a panel at the same time to talk about persistent pain was really, uh, it was a joy for me and I feel so honored to be able to host them. And I know that maybe some of you did not get the chance to see the webinar, so I thought it would be a great idea to put it up here on the podcast so that way everybody can listen and benefit from this amazing discussion and great advice. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for this webinar. For those of you who are here live, you got to hear a little bit of pre-conversation, which is great. And uh, of course, in that pre-conversation, we were talking about all the things happening in the world today, specifically here in the United States with um, a lot of unrest and protests for very, very good reasons, in my opinion. Um, And so we just want to acknowledge that and that we see it and that we are trying to learn and we are doing our best to be allies to our fellow healthcare workers and citizens across the country and across the world for all of the other countries who have been showing solidarity. Um, so uh, I'm Karen Litzy. I am going to be sort of moderating this panel of minds and I'm gonna now go around and just have each of them say a little bit about themselves. So Sandy, I'll have to start with you. Okay, hi, I'm Sandy Hilton. I'm a physiotherapist here in Chicago, Illinois with Sarah Haig, we have entropy physiotherapy. And our clinic is predominantly working with pain. Um, It's like 100% of my my caseload is people in pain and about 80% of that is pelvic pain in particular, but I still see the rest of humans. Great, David? Hi, I'm David Butler from Adelaide, Australia. I'm a physio, although I'm completely a professional. I believe everybody has the exact same role in in treating pain. I'm trying to retire, but I can't retire. And (laughs) the pain world, the changing, our changing knowledge and our changing potential just keeps me, keeps me on track. So yeah, any sort of pain I'm happy to talk about. Excellent. And Brani, go ahead. Hi, I'm Bronnie Lennox-Thompson. I'm an occupational therapist by original training with some psychology thrown in, and I'm an educator and clinician as well. Well, a teeny tiny bit of of, um, research, but not much. And I'm a paniac and quite proud of it, actually. (laughs) Good one, yeah, Bronnie. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. So again, everyone, like I said, if you have questions as we go along, please feel free to put them in the Q&A part. And we will, I will be looking at that as we're going through. Now, like I said, we've got some questions ahead of time, but before we get to some of the questions that some of uh, the listeners and viewers uh, wanted to ask, I also want to just quickly acknowledge that um, we've got a bit of a mixed audience. So we've got uh, healthcare practitioners and clinicians, and, and we've also got people living with pain. And so as a clinician, uh, for me, it's a great opportunity I think to address people in pain who maybe don't have the access or the ability to kind of get this information that's in their town or, or, or where they're living. So I am really um, 
really looking forward to this discussion, especially for those people that are watching that are living with persistent pain. So the first question I'm going to ask is, and, and I'll ask this of all of you, if you were to give a piece of advice to a new professional or a healthcare professional that is sort of newly working with people with persistent pain, what would that piece of advice be? And any one of you can kind of hop in first. I'll go first. Don't make then. me choose. I'll go. I'll go, go ahead. I'll go. Um, We're so polite down. I know. In, I'm, I'm, not, I'm in Chicago. I'm just going to take it. The, no, um, <laughs> I really like to stress, especially to students, that you know we get this this concept that that the longer you've been in the field, the better you are at it. And and I think that maybe we make different mistakes. But, but everyone is learning this and there's so much about pain that, that we're learning. And so if you're just starting in, I don't know that you might have an easier time because you have less bad habits to get rid of and can start with some of the better, newer research and, and avoid some of the mistakes we made. Great. Ronnie? Oh, me. Yes. So she's doing the popcorn approach. She looks at me and she's like, pop. <laughs> so um, I think my advice would be listen. Listen very carefully to what people tell you and trust that they're telling you their experience. Don't try and read stuff into it. Just listen and reflect. Show that you're listening by reflecting what you've heard. So you can together check out that you've understood one another. Um, because it's really easy to come out of school with all of this knowledge packed up in your brain thinking, oh, I've got to do an info dump, just like that. And it's not that great for the person. So stop and listen. Great. They're lovely comments. I'd, I'd add, I would welcome anybody to the most uh, new and exciting area of, um, of health. And there is a true pain revolution out there. And I would say to anybody when you come in to just lift your expectation of outcome of what might have been five or 10, 10 years ago, because the clinical trials and our knowledge of the potential for humans to change is just increasing so dramatically. And I, I say now we can say think treatment, not necessarily management, because for many people, recovery or some form of recovery is on the cards. And what's leading the charge is the talking and the movement therapies. It's not the drug therapies for chronic pain. And, and I'd just like to reflect as an older therapist now, um, patients who maybe 10, 15 years ago with maybe complex post-pain surgery or phantom limbs or complex regional pain syndrome, who we would have thought, oh, I can't really help here. Now we welcome them through the door and, and you can get such pleasure pleasure from treating these people, no matter how long they've had the problem. Great. And, and I, would, I would say, I would echo what Bronnie said is, you know, really listen and also believe, mm. you know, if they're, they're giving you their experience. So try and take your bias out of it and believe what they're telling you and try not to talk them out of it. <laughs> because you see this quite a bit of, Oh, I have pain with this. And well, do you really have pain with that? Or is your pain really that much? And as the patient, it's very frustrating to have someone try and tell you what your pain is. Um, so I'm looking at it from the, the person who has lived with the really chronic and at times debilitating neck pain is just listen, which is good, believe them and try not to talk people out of their experiences because it's very frustrating and it, it's very sort of dehumanizing mm -hmm. for the patient. You know, and when I look back at when I first met David and went up to him at an APTA event and said, would you like to be on my podcast? Um, and he said, yeah, sure, but I'm going to New York. And I said, oh, well, that's great because that's where I live. And so then he met me at my, where I was working at the time and spent two hours with me. And I just, after that felt like, whoa, like this is the first time that someone really listened and didn't interrupt and believed what I was saying. 
and really set me on a path that just changed my life. Like, I don't know where I would be had I not had that encounter with, with David, I think it was like 2011 or 2012. And so I always reflect on that and try and be that person because I know what it felt like. And then when someone does come in and, and gives you their full attention and their time and their understanding and then says, well, challenges your beliefs um, in a positive way, it was something for me that, you know, and I've talked about it many times that just completely changed my, my pain and my life. And so, you know, try and be that person is what I would say to people like we've got to remember that people with pain and i live with fibromyalgia those of you mm-hmm. that don't, don't know that's my my reality it's we are experts in what it's like to live with our pain to know what it feels like to know the things that set it off things that settle it down and our relationship to it to that pain and clinicians we come in with a whole lot of knowledge about other people and what we've seen so we are experts in, in a whole lot of stuff but what we're not experts in is this person's life, their experience, their what they're wanting from us even, what's important to them. And that's where when we meet and we can kind of share the hidden paradigms, the things that we don't know about each other, then then we've got a chance to make a huge change. And that's that is when I just feel so good about what I do. I just love it. I'm such a pain geek. <laughs> And I think the pain science, or the science of pain, um, really gives, as a clinician, a lot of comfort to the listen to them, believe them. You don't have to prove it. You don't mm-hmm. have to go and, like they say, I hurt here. You don't have to go poke it to reproduce the symptoms to believe it. And that's how I was taught. Um, of you have to reproduce the symptoms so that you can document that it's true. And it's like that's a giant piece of unnecessary. that we don't even have to do anymore which really saves us a lot of time Mm -hmm. not to mention establishing that trust and not being one more person that's poked them in the sore spot um but but that's a thing that i was taught in school for sure karen i've got a question um here that's directed Mm -hmm. to me shall i answer it live or shall i wait how do you want to do that well, yeah, sure, answer it, yeah. Okay, so the question is, do you think that all chronic pain patients were not treated correctly when they were having the first or second episodes of their acute pain, or are they anyway destined to become chronic pain patients? Well, I had, um, my story is I hurt my back. I was, what, 22, 21, 22, navigating a, um, doing a tango with a patient in a doorway. patient was bigger than me. I landed on the floor and hurt my back. And I had all the best evidence-based treatment at the time. So yes, I had McKenzie, I had um, oh, the interferential, maybe not, maybe not, or the ultrasound, but you, you know, an interferential. I, I just needed to lie there really and relax a bit. <laughs> um, but I didn't recover. I was then sent to um, the Auckland Regional Pain Service with the amazing Dr. Mike um, Butler, who is a rheumatologist and founded and basically was one of the first um, initiators of bringing the International Association for the Study of Pain to New Zealand. Good friend of Patrick Wall, um, knew his stuff very well, gave me the book, um, The Challenge of Pain to Read. So essentially an explain pain paradigm back in the 80s. I know pain pretty well. My pain has not gone away. So there are some people who will not have a a complete recovery of all of their pain. That's because none of our treatments provide a 100% um, abolition of pain. And actually, I'm comfortable with that. Um, I live with the pain and it gives me some stuff that some other people don't have access to. I know what it's like to have every bit of my body feeling really rotten. At the same time, I'm not limited by my pain. And I think sometimes we look at pain removal as our end goal. But I think our our end goal is to help people live full, productive, satisfying, joyful, um, enriched lives. And some people will bring their pain along with them. And many people won't have to. And that's amazing. Let's let the person make that decision about what is their most important outcome. 
But yeah, sometimes we can do all the right things, but if you have um, a spinal cord injury and you've got a smashed up spine, probable, probability is that at the moment, our technology doesn't give us a solution. We can help, but we can't always take it all away. David, what is your what are your thoughts on that? Do you, that sort of movement from acute pain to chronic pain, you know, uh, what what are your feelings on that? Is is like you said, are you destined to have it? Are uh, I know because I get this question a lot from people like, well, you know, it started out with like an ankle sprain or it started out with a knee sprain and now it's turned into this. So what, did I do something wrong or was that something not it. done? I don't think you're destined to have it, but I think our treatment or therapies and the politics of treating acute pain probably gets in the way. Um, and I also think um, if someone's hurt their back or any part of their body bad enough to see a health professional, the data is that 50 or 60 or 70% will have a recurrence in the following year. Right? Now, most health professionals think a recurrence is a re-injury. But if they really explored what happened, that mm. reoccurrence probably happened at a time when they were a little bit down and flat, the immune system's a bit out of balance, and they might have just done something simple, lift it up and pick something. We would now, from pain science, reconceptualize that as, wow, that's quite good. It's your body testing yourself out like a fire alarm. With all the stuff you've been through in the past, it's no wonder your brain wouldn't want to play it again to check out how your systems are working. But that just simple piece of knowledge, and usually, of course you'd check to make sure nothing serious has gone on. Of course you'd check. And you could normally say, well, that should ease in a couple of days. That's an example of a little bit of knowledge dampening down. They don't have to go through the old acute process again of more x-rays, more tests, more poking, mm -hmm. more prodding. <laughs> and that's a bit of, I think, if that's correct, that observation we've seen for many years, it could save governments billions. Absolutely. We've got I, to rethink the, the language we use, don't we? Is it, is it an injury or is it just a cranky body? A cranky system? body, that whole linguistics. And, uh, and for me in yeah. my treatment now, a physio by trade, I, I, I feel it's as important to help someone change the story, to have a story to take their experience out mm -hmm. into society and let it go. That to me is as, as important as having healthy movement, although they're obviously they go together. Mm -hmm. Sandy, were you going to say something? I was going to say so the, the saving of money for systems, for sure, but also the saving of time for people and the saving of, in our healthcare system, <clears throat> every test you go do is going to cost you a lot of money. Um, and, and that time that it takes to get it and the time away from work and family and, and the concern of what the test results will be, if we can divert them wisely to to not do that when it's not really indicated that's just so good yeah. and then i also oh, yeah. of waiting for you know i've had a test now i'm going to wait for the results and now i'm going to wait for what are they going to do as a result of those results and then oh it's the same and it just feels um very demoralizing to people and i think that's a you know something we need to think about we and mm -hmm. let the person make the decision about when and where to stop doing the investigations. Often it's a sense of the clinician worrying that, oh, I've missed something and they're going to sue me. It's yes, not it's really. contagious, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it is. That's not yeah. a good way to practice. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, here's a, uh, another, we'll do this uh, from Louise. She says, Pick, picking up on something David said earlier, how do we move towards being more a-professional how do we move the pain industry toward this goal? Excellent question, Louise. <laughs> I work with Luke. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, was that it, planted? It is a great I have an, an audience plant. <laughs> <laughs> go, David. Go, David. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of answers to it, but a couple would be, I think, you know, you just got to, quite frankly, I, I out there would know sports trainers who could deliver an equally good management strategy to some physios, to some doctors, etc. right? This pain thing is across all spectrums, which is why the National Pain Society meetings are so good 
and why everybody there is usually humbled and talks to all the other professionals because they realize the thing we're dealing with is quite hard and and we need all the help that that's a we can get but it ultimately comes back to provision of pain education throughout all the professions and that pain education should be similar amongst all the professions it's not happening yet we've tried pushing it but it's not out there and it's incredible considering the cost of pain is is to 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 the world is higher than than cancer and lung diseases together massive mm -hmm. yeah the burden of care is trillions of dollars across the world and yeah. you know even uh in the united states i think the burden of care is back of back pain is third behind heart disease diabetes yeah. and then it was like all cancers put together which you know and then it was back pain so and and even i i was in sri lanka a couple of years ago and i i did a talk on pain and i wanted to know what the burden of disease of back pain was in sri lanka and it was number two yeah so it's not like this is unusual even across different completely different cultural and socioeconomic countries and you know, David, kind of what you said picks up on a question that we got from Pete Moore, and he said, "Why isn't it mandatory that pain self-management and coaching skills isn't taught in medical schools? Is it because there isn't expertise to teach it?" Well, I mean, David's right here; he's semi-retired. <laughs> um, uh, why isn't it mandatory? That's a big, big question. Look, I would say though that the change is happening. Change is happening. I would say that at least half of the lectures or talks I give now are to medical professionals and out of my own profession, or even even more than half. Um, so, and that, yeah, change is happening, but it's incredibly slow. It, it needs a bloody revolution, quite frankly, in education. I totally agree, yeah. A complete reframing of the problem and an awareness that this problem that we can do something about it and awareness that there's so much research about it. Let's just get out and, and do it now. You know, the, the International Association for the Study of Pain's um, curriculum, interdisciplinary curriculum would be a nice place to start. And I know some schools here in the States are using it um, in different disciplines um, to try and get at least a baseline. We, we do use that as the core for the postgrad program that I, I am the academic coordinator for. Oh, doesn't that sound important? <laughs> it's a tiny, tiny faculty. But anyway, um, the other thing that we know is that looking at the number of hours of pain education, Elspeth Shipton, who's um, just about completed, if she hasn't, hasn't already completed her PhD, look, looking at medical education and the amount the number of hours of pain it's something like 20 over an entire education for you know six to, to six or more years in fact veterinarians get more time learning about pain than we do than doctors medical practitioners do which suggests something kind of weird going on there um so I think that's one of the reasons that it's seen as a, um, not a sexy thing to know about. And pain is seen as a sign of, or a symptom of something else. So if we treat that something else, then pain will just disappear. But yes. people carry the meaning and the interpretation and the, their understanding with them forever. We don't unlearn that, that stuff. Um, so it makes it very difficult, I think, for clinicians to, to know what to do. Um, because they're also thinking of pain as this sign of something else, not as a problem in its own right. And particularly yeah, and as time goes on, persistent pain is really a problem in its own right. Yeah. And wouldn't it be nice if we were all on the same page or in the same book? I won't even <laughs> say the same chapter, but maybe in the same book across different yeah. healthcare practitioners whether that be the nurse, the nurse practitioner, the clinical nurse specialist, the physician, the psychologist, the therapist, physical therapist. It would be so nice if we were all at least in the same book because then when your patient goes to all these people and they hear a million different things, mm -hmm. it's really confusing. I think it's very, very difficult for them to, to, for them to get a good grasp on their pain. 
if mm -hmm. they're told by one practitioner, oh, see on this, on this MRI, it's that little part of your disc and that's what it is. So we just have to take that disc out or put it back in or give a shot to this. And, and then you go to someone else and they say, well, you know, you've had this pain for a couple of years. So, you know, it may not be what's on your scan is what's good. And then, then the patient's like, who am I supposed I to believe? What, yeah. what am I going to do? And, and you don't blame the patient for that. I mean, that's, you'd feel this, that's the way I felt, you know, I had herniated discs and I say, you just get a couple epidurals and the pain goes away. And then it didn't. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, okay. Now there's, so in my head, I was thinking, well, now there's really something wrong. <laughs> that's the problem with because, modality. Oh yeah. Because yeah. If, you, if you think it's the thing you did that helped you or didn't help you, then you lose that internal control. Sure do. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think that's a great question and, and hopefully that's a big ship, but maybe it'll start to turn with the help of like a, uh, the International Association for the Study of Pain and, and some curriculum that can maybe be slowly entered or David can just Go teach, teach virtually from <laughs> different medical schools. <laughs> <coughs> just throwing it out there. It's no pressure, Dave. <laughs> no pressure. Okay. Speaking of um, modalities, we had a question. This is from someone with pain. And it's, what can be the appropriate regimen for usefulness of TENS for acute and chronic cervical and lumbar pain of nerve origin? So, Bronnie, I know that you had said you had a little bit of input on this area. So why don't we start with you and then we'll kind of go around the horn, if you will. I, I think of TENS um, in a similar <coughs> way to, to any, any treatment, really. You need to try it and see whether it fits in your life. So if you're happy and TENS feels good and you can carry it with you and you can tuck it in your pocket and you can do what you want to do, why not? Just as I would say the same about a drug. If you try a drug and it helps you and it feels good and you can cope with the side effects, there's nothing wrong with that because we're not the person living the life. Um, it's, it's more to think about it in a population level, how effective is this? Um, and my experience with TENS is that for some people, it does help and it gives a bit of medium term, like a couple of hours relief, but often it doesn't give long term sustained relief and you have to carry this thing around that's prone to breaking down and running out of batteries right when you need it. So to me, it's, it's a, um, a suck it and see, but then I put the person who's got the pain in the driving seat at all times to say, how would this fit in your life? Do you think you, you want to try this one out? It's non-invasive. It's um, having got very, very many side effects. Some people don't like the, the experience and sometimes the sticky pads are a bit yuck on your skin, but mm -hmm. you know, it's not a bad thing. Um, yeah, that's my, my take on it. <laughs> okay, David. Um, I haven't used it for 40 years. <coughs> After the Second World War finished, I sort of stopped. <laughs> but I was friendly. I was friendly with the guy who invented it, and I'm, I think he'd be he'd be happy. Pat Moore would be happy to with these comments. That <laughs> I agree with what Bronnie said. Absolutely. I would also say that hey, wow you have got something there which can change your pain by scrambling some of the impulses coming in you can change it let's add some other things which can change the impulses yeah. coming in or going out as well so let's yeah. use that but let's get you uh, doing something maybe something repetitive or something contextual or something as well so you you've shown change you're on the mm -hmm. track so i would use it as a big positive to push them on keep using it mm -hmm. but onto bigger things yeah. the advantage is it's so it's gotten so <clears throat> inexpensive so for something that has minimal to no side effects um, and has the potential of helping them to move again, which I think is always the thing that we're aiming for, it's not very expensive. Um, not yeah. now. Yeah, I no. remember when they were like but, several hundred dollars for a year. And they were like huge. Carrying a you battery. Can, around you can, <laughs> can order it online now. You don't even need a, a prescription yeah. or approval yeah. or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. true. And 
And something that I think is also important is, you know, you'll have people say, oh, those passive modalities, that's passive. You know, I had a conversation with Laura Rathbone yesterday. I, Muir's is her, Laura Rathbone Muir's. Is that how you say the last name? I think no, I that's right. Oh, Laura. Dutch. Um, Laura. And we were talking about this sort of passive versus active therapies. And, you know, her take on it uh, was more from uh, that if they, they're doing these passive modalities, they're giving away their control. And, and she said something that really struck and, and kind of what the three of you have just reinforced is that no, they still have that locus of control because they're making that conscious effort, that conscious choice to, to try this. Even though it's a passive modality, they still made the choice to use it. And I think that coupled with what David said, hey, this made a difference. Maybe there are some other things that can make a difference that I think that I don't think they're losing that locus of control or I don't think that they're losing they're, they're reliant on passive passivity. Mm. Right. When they have their own unit and they're not coming into the clinic to have it put on you. Um, and you lie there on the bed while they, yeah. while you do it, it's something that you have out in the world. It's no different to yeah. sticking a, a cold compress on your forehead when you're feeling a bit sick. You know, we mm -hmm. do that. It's just another thing that we can do. So I see it as a really, um, it's a not a bad thing and and it is in the context you know if you can do stuff while you've got it on then it's not a problem mm -hmm. as long as you like great. it <laughs> great yeah as long as you like it exactly yep. okay um so we've got we've got one another question uh that we got ahead of time and then there's some questions in the queue um so one of the questions that we got ahead of time was how do we explain pain responses like McKenzie's central sensitization phenomenon in modern pain science understanding? Really good question. Really I'm good question. <laughs> when Who wants to take that? I go? You go. Yeah. yeah. I'd answer that broadly by saying that the definition that we've used and shared with the public in the clinical sense is that we humans hurt when our brains weigh the world and judge consciously subconsciously that there's more danger out there than safety we hurt equally we don't hurt when there's more when there's more safety out there than than um danger so somebody who's in a clinic and is bending in any way and it eases pain there will never be one reason for it so it might just be it might just be the clinic it might be the receptionist it might be all adding up it might be the movement they might have done one movement and so oh i can do that and then oh safety away we go again the next movement helps within that mix there may be something structural you've done to tissues in the back and elsewhere that might have eased the nociceptors of barrage up but my answer will always be that when pain changes it's multiple things are coming together contributing to it yeah exactly and okay. they'll never never just be never just be related to nociception yeah, yeah. sandy uh, i have to i have to say this to say i am not mckenzie certified so this is my interpretation <laughs> of that uh, the i like the the concept of of you can do a movement that's going to help you feel better and we're going to teach you how to do that throughout the day maybe as a little buffer to give you more room to challenge yourself a little more knowing that you'll have a recovery. Um, and I just pick that part <laughs> and use that, but yeah. I'm, I'm not. Yeah. I'm I am not a therapist. I mean, no, 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 how, um, I met, I mean, Robin McKenzie's a key, was a Kiwi. And so I, I heard the story of how it all came about and it, and it's, um, you know, it's an observation that sometimes the movement in one direction feels better than another. Um, that's cool. Let's use that. Like you're all saying, let's make this little envelope a little bigger and let's play with those movements because we're beasts of movement. We just forget that sometimes. We think we've got to do it one way. And, you know, I can't tell my plumbers who crawl under houses, look, you've got to carry things in the way, you know, with a proper safety, you know, safe handling thing and I was a, I was a safe handling advisor so 
sue me. <laughs> no, don't. But, um, but you know, there are, there are so many ways that we can do movements. And why can't we celebrate that? And the explanation, sometimes we come up with really interesting hypotheses that don't stand the test of time. And I suspect that might be some of the things that have happened with the McKenzie approach. At the same time, what McKenzie did that very few people were doing at the time was saying, you can do something for yourself. That is where the gold was. That's what changed it. Ronnie's what really helped us to start the shift away from poking the saw bit. Come yep. on, do it yourself. And and um, yep. I always give great credit to to Robin McKenzie for that shift mm. in my yeah. And an yeah. expectation that it's going to get better. Absolutely, right? Which is huge. Yes, mm. showing something in the clinic that helps. Wow, let's ride. <coughs> let's ride with that. Mm. Yeah. And oftentimes, I think patients are surprised. Do you ever notice that, Sandy, like, or David, or, you know, when you're working with patients, they're like, oh, oh, that does feel better. Yeah, I don't hurt now. And there's just, they're just sort of taken aback by, oh, wait a second, that does feel better and it's okay, I can do it. Yeah. And then you give them the permission to do so. And like you said, is it's certainly not one single thing that makes the change. But I think everything that you guys just said are uh, probably the tip of the iceberg of all of the events surrounding that day, that time, that movement that can make a change in that person. And I think that's really important to remember. That's what I sort of picked up from the three of you. Like the stories that we make are kind of convenient ways of, for us to think that we know what we're doing, but actually we're being guided what this person by what this person feels and how they experience it. And the context we provide is of safety, security, and I'm going to look after you. And that's, you know, changes and motivations about how important something is and how confident you are that you can do it. We can provide the rationale, the importance part, Although the person ultimately drives that, but we can also provide that sense of safety in that I'm here, I'm going to hang around while you do this stuff. Let's play with this, let's experiment. And if we can take that experiment sort of notion of playing with different movements, then we've got a lot more opportunity for people in the real world to take that with them. But we can't do that if we give people a prescribed, you will do this movement in this way perfectly. And you salute, <laughs> like the old back schools. Do you remember them? Mm -hmm. the oh, I used to teach them. Oh, <laughs> I know. Oh, scary. In but they did get people moving. They did get people moving, and they did get people seeing that other people were moving. And that's a good thing that we can take from that. It's always good and not so good about every approach. Now, I, I have a question uh, for David and then out to the group. But, you know, we've been talking about sims and dims and safeties and dangers. And so for people who maybe have no idea what we're talking about when we're talking about sims and dims, can you give a quick overview of what the sims and dims of what that is so that people understand the jargon that we're using? Okay. It's a model we use. There's lots of other similar models out there. Mm -hmm. So basically, based on <clears throat> neurotag theory, the notion of a network, that there's danger, danger in me networks out there, and there's safety in me networks. Rather simple structured thinking here. And we've looked at these. This has emerged due to the our awareness, the pain science, that we have a network in our brain. And for me, as an old therapist, when the brain, when the brain mapping world came in and we realised, hang on, pain isn't just a little nest up there. There could be thousands of areas of, of, of the brain ignited, indeed the whole body ignited in a pain experience. And that's one of the most liberating bits of information for me in my whole professional career because what it meant was that many things influence a pain experience and a stress experience, movement experience, love experience, and many things can be brought in to actually try and change it. And it also means that everything matters. So this is where dims, danger in me, safety in me, and it was just a way to collect them. So an example of a dim, we've categorized them, could be things you hear, see, smell, taste, and touch. So for one person, it could be the smell of something burning or looking at something or hearing something, noise. The things you do could be a dim. It could be just doing nothing. Right? But then there's sims. 
gradually exercising, great exposure. Um, Sims in things you hear, see, smell, taste and touch could be going out. Look, one of my most common exercises I now give somebody is to go down to our local market and find four different smells, four different things to taste, four different things to touch. And then they'll say, why should I do that? Because you can sculpt new safety pathways in your brain, which will flatten out some of the, some of the pathways there linked to pain. So, and it comes that even the things you say is important. You know, I can't, I'm stuffed, I'm finished, I got mum's knees. We try and change that language to I can, I, I, I will, I've got new flight plans, I can see the future. The people you meet, the places you're with. So it's a way of categorising all those things in, 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 um, in life. Um, into either danger or safety. We try for therapy, we try and remove the dangers. It is often via education. What does that mean? And we try and help them find safety. And health professionals out there are good at finding danger, but we're not used to getting out there and finding those liberating safety things. And of course, the dim sim thing, it's also closely linked in, we believe, to immune balance. So the more dims you have, the more inflammatory broad immune system, the more sims you have, you're more towards the analgesics at a safety, safety end. So it's a way to collect them. It's a way to collect as we try and unpack and unpack a patient's story, listening to it with them to unpack it and then to repack it again with them um, in a different way. Did that make sense? Absolutely. Yes, I think oh, that thanks, made guys. very good sense. And I believe you, there is a question on it, but I believe you answered it in that explanation. Oh, God. Um, it says, have you had patients that cannot find SIMS or it's difficult to identify? And if so, how can you teach them what a SIM is? But I think you just answered that question in that yeah. explanation. So once they get it, they're on their way and we send people on SIM hunting homework. So, for example, the sim might be places you go. Okay, if you can get out, just walk in the park or walk somewhere. Then power up the sim by feeling the grass, touching the bark, smelling something. And we power it up by letting them know that if you do that, your immune system gets such a healthy blast that it can also help dampen down some of the, some of the pain response. And with regard to our current situation sort of around the world, COVID-19 and all the subsequent stuff and, and also the situations in the US at the moment, is it any wonder <coughs> that lots of people are feeling quite sore? Because all we're getting is this barrage <coughs> of threat messages to us. Absolutely. And so I would, I would argue that at the moment, it might be worthwhile if you're a bit vulnerable to getting fired up with this stuff, that it's a good idea to ration how much time you spend looking at the stuff. Not to be remain ignorant of it, but to balance that with those other things that feel good, that make you feel treasured and loved and connected. And for me, it's often spending some time in my silversmith studio, walking the dog, going outside, doing something in nature. And there is some really good research showing that if you're out in the green world, nature, that that is something that our bodies really relish. Kind of makes sense to me. So in taking the concept into what's going on right now, there's um, been a challenge clinically of the things that helped people balance that out got taken mm -hmm. away from them. Yeah. So it, it was a complicated, yes. it still is a complicated thing where it's, it wasn't your choice to stop going to the swimming pool because it made you happy and it gave you exercise and, and balanced mm -hmm. this out. Someone closed the pool and told you you couldn't go. And so there's, there's all different layers of loss in that um, and lost expectations and, and loss of empowerment and all of these things. So we have had to help people rediscover things that they could access that could be those positives. Um, and that's been hard and um, really working my, my muscles of of how to help people find joy or pleasure or happiness or safety in an unsafe environment um, to, to really get that on a micro level when you've lost the things that used to be there. Um, and, and it's been like what, a lot, but you can do it. It just takes concentration. So important. Yeah. That's so important. I think um, a question for therapists, health professionals should be, a sound question should be, 
you know, what's your worldview at the moment? And I, and I would ask that, and it's usually not good, but I chat and have a chat, and actually, I'd like to take people through some graphs that the world is not as bad as it really is. Mm. And if you look at, um, I've been reading a book by Hans Rosling called Factfulness, and really, over time, our world is getting better. There's less childhood disease. There's a whole range of things getting better bad, and bad things getting better. This is a hiccup. Just for example, I had a musician recently and I had a graph I could show her that say that there's now 22,000 playable guitars per million people in the world, but 12 years ago, there was only 5,000. All right, this is just one little thing, all right? But, but I would like to say that there's a lot of stats that show that our world is improving. You know, child, children, children dying, uh, <clears throat> um, amount of science, a whole range of things. And there's this hiccup we have that I'm hopeful humanity can get, can get through. But just a little message I pass on as therapy. That's brilliant. And I've already looked at the book. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and also, Ed, that, that, was, that though, was quick. Even though we can't do stuff, we can't access places, what can't be taken away is our memory of being there. So it's really easy to take a moment to bring back a memory that feels good to say, actually, you can't take that one away from me. I might not be physically getting there, but I can remember it, feel those same feelings, and then being mindful. This is funny because if you look at Ronnie's background, that's one of the memories I've been using when yeah. I lost the lakefront. It's like, okay, I'm just going to sit there and pretend that I'm out at that beach by that pier. So it's, it's fabulous. And even pictures or, or recordings of things that yeah. you've done before is like, okay, now there is still good stuff. I might not have it right here, mm -hmm. but there's still good stuff. So that's really funny. As soon as I saw the picture, I'm like, yeah. yeah. And gratitude and just the other, other thing as well. We've always got something that we can be grateful for for all that it might feel trite. You know, I'm, I'm living in winter, <laughs> but I've got a roof over my head. I can have a damn fine cup of coffee and probably a nice craft ale at the end of the day. These are things that I can do and can have anyway. So we can create the sense of safety and security inside ourselves without necessarily having to experience it. We can just right. bring it with us. Just a quick and comment. That yeah. I would share that with patients um, who can't get out. I'm saying the things you do when you're still can be as important as the things you do when you move. Mm. Right? So let's explore. If you can't do things, you can still really work you yourself with the things you do when you're still. Time yeah. for introspection, reading, thinking, contemplation, memory enhancement, go through the photo album, etc. And I'd also yeah. like to always say to someone to link that in. That is a very, very healthy thing to do to your neuroimmune complex. Yeah. And that sort of brings, I think we answered this question. This was from a woman who is living with chronic pain and at high risk with COVID-19. Said, how do we get past the fear of going out where people are crowding areas to get the exercise we need to maintain our fitness and muscle tone to, re to reduce our pain? Um, she said, even though I'm doing exercises and stretching, I've lost the ability to walk unaided on uneven grounds through weeks of lockdown and the hydrotherapy pool is closed. Um, mm. She said, she knows I need to get out and walk more, but shopping centers, which are the best place to find level four, level floors are out. Um, and uh, a lot of places that she used to go are now very crowded because people are, don't have the access to gyms and things like that. Um, are health professionals able, able to suggest options when she lives in a hilly area with only a few, um, but all uneven footpaths or sidewalks and she has a small house? That's, that's the and, kind of thing that we've been doing since it's like, like, yeah, okay, let's problem solve this out. Um, because yeah, you, you have your carefully set way to get through this and then it's, it's disrupted. Um, yeah. Boy, I like having lots of options for movement opportunities. So we don't think of my exercise, but we think of how can I have some movement today and bring that sense of um, where I like to be. Like if I can imagine I'm walking along the beach um, while I'm standing and doing something and you know, doing the dishes or watching TV or something, that still can bring some of those same neuro tags, that same illusion, the imaginary stuff activating in my brain 
And that is a really, really important thing because we can't always, the weather can be horrible, especially if you're in Christchurch <laughs> and you can't go out for a walk or, well, you know, live with things. Hey, what was that? You poor New Zealanders. <laughs> I know. Oh, I'm freezing. It's winter. But then we've got Jacinda, so, you know, and you can't have you, sorry. You've got Jacinda. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we can be, we can think um, novelty is really good. So maybe this is a really neat opportunity to try some play. Um, and I've, I've been watching some of um, the stuff that, our two chiropractor friends do with you. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's put let's put Luke Davies and, and colleagues and you know let's try some obstacle courses in, in, in the house so that it's not um, we're not thinking of it as exercise and I've got to do three sets of ten. Please physios change that. Um, let's mm. do something that feels like a bit of fun. Um, there's some very cool inside activities that are supposed to be for kids. I haven't grown up yet. I'm still a baby. <laughs> yeah, a lot of yeah, a I lot think... of balance and things like that. Do mm. inside that would would help when you have your paths back outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. And then sticking with uh, since we're talking about this time of COVID, where some places are still in lockdown, some places are opening up. Ronnie and David are in an area of the world where they have very, very few cases, very, very few cases. Well, Sandy and I are one. <laughs> Sandy and I are in a part of the world where we have a lot more than one. Mm -hmm. um, so what a lot of practitioners have had to do is we've had to move to telehealth. And so one of the questions uh, David Poulter, I believe, asked, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, um, is do we perceive that our ability to be empathetic and offer effective pain education is somehow diminished by a telehealth consult? So are we missing that not being in person? You bet. I have found it equally possible, in person or telehealth, because you're still making that connection. We do miss stuff. We can't read the micro expressions in people as easily. So we as therapists have to work harder. But for the person on the other end, think about what the alternative is. They might And it's been really cool for the people with pelvic pain that every single time they've gone to a, a physio, it's been painful. Mm. And um, oh, do a vow on telehealth. It's the first time she's been able to talk to someone about all of her bits and pieces without being afraid that it's going to hurt. Because there was no way I was going to touch her. What? You get to see somebody inside somebody's home. You get to know something more about them. I've met more pets than ever it's, thought I would. It's so wonderful. This is a privilege that occupational therapists have had for, for a long time. And I'm so pleased that other, other clinicians are getting that same opportunity because we know so much more about a person when we can see the environment that they live in. It's just fantastic. But it's harder. David. It's interesting. I find I've come back into clinical practice. I thought I was going to retire because I wanted to go. <laughs> <laughs> and for those who are doing it, I was hopeless at first, but <clears throat> I'm really enjoying it. And I actually believe, I actually believe that the kind of therapies we're doing, it's equal or better than face-to-face. -face. Ideally, I think I'd like to have one face-to-face -face or maybe two, but then to continue with the telehealth. Yeah, Particularly in Australia, where so many people are in rural areas, and yes. it's almost as though this kind of therapy was coming anyway, but the COVID mm -hmm. has hastened it. Mm -hmm. So I find myself getting, a, a, um, anecdotally here, a much more emotional, closer, quicker link to patients via the screen. They're in a safe place. They're in their house. That's number one. They're not in a clinic. Huh? Mm. Secondly, you're there and you can actually look at that face in the screen as we're doing now. I'm looking at your faces maybe one or two feet away and I'm just keep looking at you. Huh? Mm. And, and there's this connection which is there. And there's also these other elements it brings in, like you start at 10 o'clock and you finish at 10.45. So there's open and closure, which isn't really there in some of the, in some of the, of the clinics. 
The difficulty I'm having with it though is I was never in face-to-face -face practice a very good note taker. I used to make some notes at the end. I was, I was talking too much. But what you have to do here, my suggestion with face-to-face, -face is you really need to plan and make your notes straight after. Because what did I tell that one on the screen last? Because you don't have all the clinical context to sort of remind you of all the little juicy mm -hmm. bits that went on in the interaction. Yeah. So it's really, for me, it's come back to curriculum. And mind you, I'm glad I'm not doing dry needling or just manipulating. It wouldn't work very well. <laughs> so those into the talking therapies, but uh, my big suggestion is to have for the have a curriculum. So I've got my key target concepts. So I know that I've addressed them that particular session. In the next session, I know I've gone back and I've done teach them the self reflection as well. The um, to come back to see if they can get it or, or if they've translated my knowledge into something functional or some or some change. So I'm really I'm really loving it, and and I'm I think there's a uh, there's something rather new and special with this with this interaction but maybe that's just me as a physio who's sort of used to the more physical stuff maybe this is something more natural to the psychologist ot's perhaps but i'm with it say, and, yeah, and I think i've been doing the group stuff with people and i found that um has been they've said they like it because they don't have to go and travel someplace it does mean that we can offer it to people who otherwise can't get here you know they can't seek people especially rural parts of new zealand although broadband is not that great in many parts as well so i think it's a um it's an opportunity i'd like to see op the the availability of it as an option so we can mm -hmm. use like we do with our therapies we pick and choose the right approach for the right person at the right time in the right place. That it doesn't have to be one or the other. Like yeah. David said, you could see them a couple of times in person mm -hmm. and then a couple telehealth and then maybe they come back again and then you do yeah. it and we can mix and match. Yeah. 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 Great. Okay. Um, we've got, we have time for one more question here, maybe two. So David, this was one, you might be able to answer it really quickly. Um, as a practitioner, what is the utility of straight leg raise slump and prone knee bend tests in the assessment of chronic back pain? Is it still relevant? Oh gosh. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dodge that question and would say it, it would depend on the client who comes in. So <clears> very, fair. very I think the, I think those neurodynamic tests, which I still do, fine. I think the main principle from them is you're testing movement. You're not testing a damaged tissue. And anytime you're doing a physical examination, the deeper thing is the patient is testing you. You're not testing them. So what that patient, what that patient offers back in terms of movement or, or pain responses or whatever depends on so many things. I may, however, have a client and they are out there who do have maybe a specific stickiness or something or, or, or something catchy, whatever, that may well, the scar around it might well be polarised by, by action where I might spend a little bit more time taking a closer look at it. Now, that might be relevant. Someone might have, for example, someone might come out of hospital and have, a, have had a needle next to their, um, an IV drip next to their musculocutaneous or radial sensory nerve there, where it's really worthwhile. Let's, let's explore all the tissues here and see that that nerve can move or slide or, or glide. But in the second case, I've made a clinical decision that we probably have issues out in the tissues which are worth a closer evaluation. That's a really broad answer to I think that's, it's, I think it's a tough question to answer because it, oh, sorry, got a cat behind me. Um, You're lucky. Oh. I, felt my, I felt my chair moving and I was like, what's going on? Um, so, <laughs> not uh, like, woo, no, not an earthquake, just a large cat. Um, <gasps> so last, last question. Um, so how to manage telehealth when the patient's maybe kind of embarrassed of their house or context their spaces their family it's very common in low socioeconomic patients so they may not want to turn on their camera yeah i've had that I've Andy, had people, i saw you shaking yeah well and, and i've had people um in their car or or very clearly like i'm kind of angled because there's a lot going on in my house and i don't have a green screen so um the 
the where it's like and there's just a wall behind me and it's one of the reasons like i'll talk to him ahead of time of mm. of if i'm in the clinic it's clearly the clinic but i'll tell him i'm at my house because of covid so you know no judgment you're gonna see a wall and probably a cat and and just kind of be up front in the beginning of of this is a thing i've had people that start with the phone on or turn it off or whatever you just you roll with it um yeah but I have those conversations ahead of time before we even do the call of. It's about creating a safe space for people to connect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if somebody feels better with not having the video, it won't be that long before I hope we've got some rapport and it feels better. Um, I'm just, I'm doing a bit of a chuckle because the reason I've got my green screen is because behind <laughs> me is my Silversmith studio, which is an absolute shambles because it's a creative space. So I'm just disguising it <laughs> because, you know, that works. There is something about delivering a, a story of some talking in the, in the patient's room and there's cupboard doors open and you're looking in their cupboard at the same time. And, you know, I just look at that and I just look at that and think, okay, we're safe here. We're safe. Let's get on with the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, this has been an hour. Um, thank you so much. I just want to uh, ask one more question, or not even a question, more like um, a statement from all of you that what would you like the people who are listening in there, like I said, there were clinicians, there were non-clinicians on here. And I think every, from the comments that we're seeing in the chat is, is very valuable and very helpful. So what do you want to leave people with? I'm going to echo the, how I started. We're learning more every single week. I'd say day, but I'm not reading that often right now. So week. Um, so even if you've gone or you've treated someone and you couldn't quite figure out a way to help them, don't give up because there's more information and more understanding and more ways to get to this all the time. And I, I don't think you're stuck if you hurt. Um, so Hang in there. I'd like to say, I'd like to mirror those comments, explore the power of telehealth, lift your expectations of outcome. For those patients, who, people who are suffering with pain who are listening, for those who are getting into um, pain treatment, um, there's a science revolution and a real power in that revolution behind, behind what you do. So just go for it. I think don't be hung up on whether the pain changes or not. Be hung up on, does this person connect with me? Are we creating trust? Am I listening? Can I be, can I be a witness? Can I be there for you? Because out of that will come this other, other stuff. There are some people who don't, whose pain doesn't get better, doesn't go away, and that's a reality. But it doesn't mean that you have to be imprisoned or trapped by your pain. It means you develop a different relationship with your pain. And I think that's a lot of what we are doing is creating this chance to have some wiggle room to begin to live lives that are worth living. That's, that's what I'm looking for. Beautiful. Well, you guys, thank you so much. And for everyone that um, is here uh, listening, I just want to say thank you so much for giving up an hour of your time. Um, I know that time is valuable, so I just want to thank you all, and and to Bronnie, and to David, and to Sandy. Thank you, thank you, thank you, um, thank you. for doing this <laughs> really? kind of this on the fun. fly. Um, so oh, cool. I just want to thank you so much, and to to everyone. Um, I guess the thing that I would leave people with is is if you're a clinician. Uh, or if you are a patient, the best thing that you can do if you are in pain is reach out to someone who might be able to help you. Mm -hmm. Find a mentor, find a clinician, ask around, Google, do whatever you can. Try and find someone who like Bronnie and David and Sandy, I'll echo everything you said that number one, first and foremost, you connect with yeah. and that you feel safe with. You want them to be your super sim. You know, like Sandy's my super sim. <laughs> so you want them to be your super sim. Um, and and if you can find that that person, that clinician, um, just know that uh, that there can be help. 
You know, whether you're struggling as the clinician to understand your patients or you're the patient struggling to find the clinician, I think help is out there. You just have to make sure that you be proactive and search for it. Because usually they're not going to come knock on your door. You're just sitting on your couch. It's a little so. weird right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 No. <laughs> exactly. Um, so everybody, thank you so much for, uh, uh, for showing up. Thank you, everyone who is on the call and to everyone who is watching this on the playback. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, you can find us. We're on social media and, and various websites and things like that. So you, we're, we're not hard to find. So, um, thank you. Yeah. I want to say thank You'll you. It's so good to see you, David. Hugs. Yes, Andy. Thanks, Karen. Karen. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks, Love everybody. you, everybody. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.